This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids. The podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show by podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. I can't waste any time on an introduction. <laughs> we are talking about Jen's favorite environment. Let's get right to it. That's right. We're going to the ocean. What problem are we solving today? What is it like to live underwater? Ooh, what's it like to live underwater? And this guest is one of my favorite aquanauts. Who are we speaking to today, Jeff? Let's get right to it. We need to start talking to Aquanaut Liz McGee. Welcome to the show, Liz. Oh, thanks for having me, Jennifer and Jeff. I'm excited to be here. Oh, we are thrilled to have you. So those of you that hopefully are familiar with my Astronaut Aquanaut book, but if you're not, Liz was one of the Aquanauts that was interviewed and she helped me answer some questions for my Astronaut Aquanaut book. So she's a celebrity there, right? <laughs> she is. <laughs> she is on this podcast. Yes, exactly. Okay, so I'd like to start off with my first question. Did you always want to be an Aquanaut and be in the ocean and learn about it? I have always wanted to be a marine scientist. Ever wow. since my older sister was obsessed with manatees, I thought anything in the ocean I thought was cool because she thought it was cool. So, yeah. Okay. Oh, so when you say kind of older sister, how much older and how old was she when she got interested in manatees yeah, yeah. that you got interested in the ocean as well? They are still her favorite animal five years older than me and that she was probably around nine or 10 when she started. No to kidding. Really wow. So I was a little, yeah. And so it was just always a, this is what I want to do. Cause she thought it was cool. So I thought it was cool. And ever since then, yeah. That's fantastic. Wow. So, so did you go to the ocean or where did you grow up near one yeah. or something that you got to yeah. spend a lot of time there? Yeah. We grew up going to the coast of Maine. It's about oh. three hours North of Boston. We would camp right on the beach every summer, wow. every year nice. of my life. And we would spend hours tide pooling, looking under the seaweed, looking for hermit crabs. And it's a campground called Hermit Island because of all of uh. <laughs> And hunting for sand dollars and just really exploring all over the coast of Maine. And that really instilled in me a curiosity for the ocean. That's a gorgeous place. I just visited Maine a couple of weeks ago. My daughter lives up there. Oh mm -hmm. my goodness gorgeous we went to acadia i'm like oh, I, right. this is yeah. this is where i want to live right here <laughs> by the ocean and the trees i can imagine going there as a kid wow with that all starting so early do you remember doing projects in school like whenever it was time for your science teacher or writing an essay was your first thought to do some sort of project about the ocean 
Oh yeah. Like any relevant <laughs> ocean relevant activity I could, I was there. And that even I signed up to take a life sciences class early in high school so I could take biology oh, early. Right. I really wanted to go to a summer camp up in Acadia, Maine for marine sciences. And so yeah, anything oh. I could do to kind of keep it relevant in my everyday world, whether that's okay. taking a marine sciences I was there. I was for it. Okay, you're in high school, but kind of when did you get into it? Did you start like volunteering at aquariums or yeah. or when did you start diving? Yeah, well, I didn't start diving till college, but I okay. did start volunteering at the New England Aquarium when I was in high school, when oh, I could wow. get there pretty much on my own without having to have parents drive you into the city. <laughs> I volunteered in the visitor education department and was able to like share my passion with all of the visitors at the aquarium. And that was amazing. And then I went to school at Northeastern University, which is where I work still today, and took the beginning scuba course that they offered. I got a co-op back at the New England Aquarium, diving in the giant ocean tank. I did (gasps) 700 dives. Nice. No way. Yeah. Hung out with Myrtle for hours every day. Oh my gosh, I've seen Myrtle. Oh, she's amazing. Oh, that's so cool. I'm very jealous. That's the job I would want. So in some of the same time frame, I was actually just down the road at the New England Science Center in Worcester. Oh, yeah. um, nice. And I became Galactic Space Geek Jeff because I started working in the planetarium. Awesome. At the New England Science Center. So I love the story of how going to work at the New England Aquarium, you know, right near Northeastern mm-hmm. sort of set you really on the career path and you're still there today. Yeah. yeah. So what was after Northeastern, after graduating college, what was your first job experience in yeah. the ocean world? Yeah. So I did a study abroad program called the Three Seas Program while Mm -hmm. I was an undergrad. That was how I got involved in the world of science diving. Diving has some inherent dangers associated with it because you're underwater, which is not our natural environment. So in order to work underwater, there's an agency called the American Academy of Underwater Sciences that trains Mm -hmm. divers to be able to do science underwater. Okay. Ah. When I did the study abroad program, I got trained as a scientific diver and really got bit by the bug of science specifically. And so I kind of continued on that trajectory. And after this program, I stayed out on Catalina Island in California. Oh, wow. Yeah. I worked at a different summer camp, the Catalina Island Marine Institute. And I got my scuba instructor certification during that same time period so that I could then go on to facilitate teaching other people how to do science underwater. So that was my wow. first like, post-college job. It was really fun being able yeah. to teach. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. So can you give us some examples? Because, I mean, I've never heard the term scientific diving. How is that yeah. different? Like, what are you doing for science yeah. underwater? Anything you can do on land as a scientist, you can kind of do underwater as well. So there are a lot of times you're really curious about things like how many types of one specific type of organism is there in this environment? Like yeah. how many insects are in this patch of grass? You can translate that to underwater and say like how many right. snails are in this Wow. Pool? And so the same types of ways that you would count on land, you can do underwater as well with t- the same types of tools. As long as they are appropriate, I did not know that. Float away, you can use them underwater. And we have 
underwater slates to record data. So you can use a pencil and this, it's like a PVC material or, or underwater paper and just transcribe your data as you're collecting it underwater. And That's super cool. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Lots of underwater paper and duct tape and zip ties is kind of a (laughs) (laughs) very, very technical equipment we're working with here. Uh, So, can you remember an early project that you worked on that was just like, okay, I'm hooked. This is what I'm going to keep doing. Yes, I remember being out in the kelp beds of Southern California on a little tiny uh-huh. whaler. I was like looking at my data sheet from underwater, counting the number of urchins, the various species of urchins that they had in okay. various types of habitat, whether it was sand or kelp or like an urchin barren zone. And I just remember thinking this was this was really wow. amazing experience. And I just wanted to keep finding opportunities to keep involved. I yeah. like it. I agree. I think the ocean is so amazing. I mean, right now we're everybody's excited about space and space is cool, but yeah. there's so many other creatures mm-hmm. in the ocean that yeah. you can study. So I want to get to you actually lived underwater, right? Wow. During Mission 31 with Fabian Cousteau. Can you yeah. talk about what that was like and what you've the, your body goes through kind of as oh, you live yeah. underwater? It was definitely one of the or the most unique experience of my professional career. And wow. it was so much fun. I have never felt so simultaneously exhausted, exhilarated, <laughs> and passionate for an extended period of time besides this experience. And it really did impact your like body physiology, how you feel interacting with your environment, being in that underwater environment for so long. I remember the very first feeling I had when I got up into the Aquarius habitat and took my helmet off. And I just remember thinking like, my ears feel funny. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) and I never stopped noticing that. Like I noticed it throughout the entire duration of our two weeks there. There's just more pressure in like uh, from the outside air because the air is more Uh, dense there into your ears and you kind of feel it. And also your voice sounds really funny and high pitched down there. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. I do sound a little bit squeaky uh, when I talk. (laughs) And another really noticeable thing is a really diminished sense of smell and taste. And Uh, is a little bit less, I think well-known, but I think it has to do with molecules not reaching your, you know, molecules that you would normally smell on the surface underwater at that depth. The pressure doesn't really allow for you to smell deeply and smell is really associated with taste. So I think that was the reason. Right. Okay. So many peanut butter M&Ms underwater. I, I was just going to say, <laughs> I've talk, we've had Aquanaut Brian Helmuth on the show, yeah. and he said that peanut M&Ms were, peanut, yep, yep. Is, were the favorite food of choice for anybody underwater mm-hmm. in Aquarius. Yeah. <laughs> and I think another reason for that is because you are, like, I was out in the water diving for up to nine hours a day. Wow. And the water around the Aquarius habitat is 85 degrees. It's luxuriously tropical. You get so cold when you're out in the water that long, even though I was wearing I was, I think, burning a lot of extra calories. And so that's why maybe I was so drawn to the 
the peanut. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, if you're swimming nine hours a day, you can eat them by the handful, yeah. right? It's okay. <laughs> so for our listeners that may not know, can you tell us a little bit more about what is Aquarius and yeah. where is it and how far down? Yes. So the Aquarius habitat is currently the world's only underwater laboratory that exists. Mm -hmm. There have been others in the past, but the Aquarius is longstanding. I believe it's been around for over 30 years. Wow. It's lived in different locations, but it's been off the coast of Isla Mirada, Florida now for, I think, over 10 or 15 years. And it's currently run by Florida International University. And they okay. coordinate with many different institutions, including NASA for astronaut training and right. other mm-hmm. research institutions that conduct long research underwater. And it's 60 feet down on the ocean okay. floor, but it's uh, up at about 45 feet of depth where so it's up on stilts, kind of like concrete right. platform. Gotcha. So at 45 yeah. feet. And that habitat, which is about the size of a school bus, can yep. have up to six people at a time. And it's definitely a cozy experience. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But luckily you're outside for most of the time. You're outside exploring. And so that's kind of like you go in to sleep and eat and recharge for your next time out in the ocean. And we had a a phenomenal time during Mission 31. And we got to engage with so many classroom groups virtually over Zoom, which at the time was kind of pretty new it's like yes for us now but yes and we got to interact with different news organizations and just the experience getting to know the other aquanauts but most importantly also all of the surface support people that made our everyday life possible was like my most favorite part we got to interact with navy divers and all of the other researchers from northeastern and fiu who really made the mission possible that's fantastic so can you tell us Because when I go out and talk about Astronaut Aquan and talk about all you guys, I get asked tons of questions from kids about what kind of animals did you see? And usually I have to start with they did not put it near any sharks, right? Because the kids are like, are they interacting with great white sharks? And I'm like, no. So what other creatures did you see and interact with? It's like a remarkable ecosystem. And the Aquarius habitat has been there long enough that it is part of the ecosystem there. Every inch of this habitat's encrusted with organisms that wow. make it kind of part of the reef. And yeah. so you're right there with it. And every day you get to interact with the groupers that are making the habitat their home. And these giant groupers are up to 600 pounds. Wow. Wow. moving creatures. And you can get right up next to them because they're just kind of comfortable with everybody in this habitat. Wow. Okay. And they're one of the one of the creatures that are really at the top of the food chain surrounding the habitat. Gotcha. We did see some nurse sharks, which are pretty docile sharks. Right. They eat more eat like mussels and other crustaceans. And lots of rays. Oh, wow. were swimming around. Yeah. Spotted eagle rays. They they would just swim right over your head while you're walking around the coral reef. It was just remarkable. But my favorite creature was the mantis shrimp. So, yeah. And so one thing that's hard to describe about doing science underwater is you usually only have like 60 minutes to make it happen. You have 60 minutes of bottom time because you're wearing a tank of air that has a really limited quantity. And you also have to be concerned about decompression sickness, which is a buildup of nitrogen in your body from the increased pressure at depth. And when you're staying underwater at the Aquarius habitat, 
you don't have those concerns. And right. so what I was able to notice is I had that time, that long period of time to just notice little things that you get to notice on land. It's so cool. Curious about nature. Yeah. I could do that underwater. And one of the things we did was find like these tiny little creatures and be able to watch them for long periods of time. So we were able to hang out with a mantis shrimp for a couple of hours and film it with a special edgertronic camera to see it in super, super, super slow motion. Oh, uh, wow. Reaching out to grab little fish that were swimming by it then. And that was probably one of the most fun experiences <laughs> I had there. But That's it was on this amazing. You know, tiny little, like, you know, two inch creature that I would have never noticed otherwise if I didn't have this luxury of time. Right. Um, That's, That's terrific. That's amazing. Yeah. So you just mentioned when you're doing regular diving, you've got the tank on and you're very limited. And I'm wondering how much different is it with Aquarius? Are you tethered to the Aquarius, like with a hose that allows you those longer periods of time? Yeah, we had a couple of options when we were conducting oh, okay. Mission 41. So we could dive with big twin tanks on our back. Right. Okay. We untethered to the habitat. And we also had a special full face mask, unlike your normal diving goggles that just cover your eyes and nose that allowed us to communicate with the other divers. Oh. And during okay. those missions that we weren't tethered to the habitat, we had to be very aware of where we were in the vicinity of the habitat. And we had right. special lead lines because if there was ever a sandstorm or something that would decrease your visibility, it was vitally important that you could get back to the habitat. Yes. To, yes. to be able to, you know, get back into air. But the majority of time, yes, we spent tethered from wow. the full helmet and oh, we could talk the, the whole time. And the um, full helmet itself yeah. must have just yeah. been amazing to be underwater. So, and, yeah. Yeah. I have never wow. had that experience of being able to talk underwater and I wasn't quite sure how it would be to be able to just communicate with everybody, but I, I guess I gabbed a bit too much because there were a few times <laughs> where, like, you got to pipe down out there. So. <laughs> but it's just fun to be able to talk and chat and joke and just. Yeah. I love that you took such note of that one little part of the experience and that that made such a memory for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That you were able to do that. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little more. First of all, I the rule that I've heard is you always dive in pairs, right? You oh, always yeah. have a diving buddy. So there's, you know, anything like that. But can you kind of explain how do you get into the water from Aquarius? So yeah. so that everyone understands Aquarius is not filled with water. It's right. like, you know, all of the air is pushed down because of the pressure. How do you get in and out? There's a special area called the moon pool. And the okay. moon pool is the layer of water and air that meets within a special room of the Aquarius habitat. And so if you can picture your kitchen sink and you take a cup and you turn that cup upside down and stick it in the water, there's a pocket of air that's right. trapped at the top of that cup. And that's kind of like the moon pool with the Aquarius habitat. Oh, wow. You yeah. just pop up and your head comes out of the water and into the air of the Aquarius habitat. And you walk up some steps and you're in the wet porch of the Aquarius habitat where it's definitely muggy because it's very humid there. Yes. <laughs> but you can, you know, take all your scuba gear off, take a two minute shower maximum and walk <laughs> yourself into the more air conditioned area of the habitat. Luckily, oh. it's air conditioned. So basically what you're saying is 
in your little house that you're living in, you have a secret pool that takes you into the ocean. Can I, I want one of those. Oh my Can God. I have Me one too. of those in my house? That okay. would be amazing, yeah. right? So, so Nerd Jeff just was thinking about the old science fiction movie, The Abyss, where yep. they are doing science underwater and yep. they had one of those. Yep. And I still remember being however young I was watching that movie probably 20 years ago, thinking... How cool is it to just yeah. be walking in a room in your gear and then just, okay, I'm just going to dive head first and I'm in the ocean. Yes. And that's what you were doing, Liz. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we've talked a lot about a couple of different things. Now I want to put them together. The scientific diving. Yeah. During Expedition 31, did you have like a main goal? Was there a scientific experiment that you were working on? or part of it that stood out for you? Yeah, we were conducting several experiments during our time at Mission 31. One of the most fun ones was collecting DNA samples of all of the sponge species that exist around Ooh, these Wow. And we brought them back as specimens to be processed by the Ocean Genome Legacy Center, which is an ocean DNA biorepository. So they take oh, all wow. of these specimens and they... Yep collect the DNA, and then they can give it to any scientist that wants to use it across the world. And so it's a great place to be able to donate these specimens. But our job was to try and find all the different ones. And what's really challenging about sponges is they can look so similar and be totally different species. You don't even know until you see them under a microscope. Wow. Okay. I kind of had the fun job of being like, this looks a little different. And I took a sample of it and put it in a specimen bag and labeled it and photographed and documented it and then just gave it to the surface team who had to do the hard job of trying to figure out what it actually was. Yeah, I like <laughs> that. My guess. So do you by chance remember how many different species of sponge you guys found? I think we were after 35. And, wow. But I think we ended up with around 32, which isn't bad. Oh that's my not, goodness. No, that's not bad. Because especially if they're that small and you have to look yeah. all over the place for them. two different kinds of sponge. That's wow. amazing. So also, I mean, I guess I'm a little more curious too. Like, what did you eat while you're down uh, there? Yeah. You know, kids ask me that all the time yeah. besides the peanut M&Ms. What yeah. else did you lots eat? Of, lots of peanut M&Ms. We also primarily ate freeze-dried camping food. So what you take to go backpacking because it's super light, there's no water. You open it up and add hot water to it, let it sit for a few minutes. And it's kind of pretty good food for being <laughs> Pretty and, good. Um, there was one afternoon that we got a very special delivery from the surface support team. It was, and so all of you, the, all, anything that comes from the surface comes in this like pressure cooker, basically, that they can bring down underwater right. and it withstand the pressure. You can bring anything in them, your computer, your laundry, oh, wow. water, oh, wow. or in this case, it was a Ziploc full of pizza. Oh, wow. my. Yeah, that was fun. That was a good <laughs> like what real a pizza, treat. not yeah. not freeze dried. Real no, pizza, <laughs> a special treat. And in conversations I have had with many different astronauts, this puts aquanauts <laughs> on top of astronauts because the number one food that astronauts would love to get in space is real pizza. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you could get it in a delivery. Wow. Yeah. Okay, now I have to ask. Connecting what you ate to the moon pool, Mr. Jeff's brain just went to, did you guys ever go fishing? 
from inside the habitat through your to catch a fish to be able to cook it and eat it? That would be pretty crazy. We did not. (laughs) Actually, it's a marine reserve right around the habitat. So you're not allowed to Uh, fish around there. But I think it would be pretty easy pickings because those fish are so comfortable (laughs) with all of the people around there that (laughs) it would be no problem to catch something. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so what did you do when you were not swimming? Because I've seen pictures, I mean, of, you know, you have that really cool observation window where you can watch things and whatever. Did you have to write up scientific logs? Did you get to, I mean, I'm assuming there was no TV down there or anything. Did you guys like have karaoke sing? What'd you do? (laughs) We were really busy the whole time. So we had a schedule of events that were, we had back-to-back activities throughout the entire day just to really take advantage oh, wow. of the amount of time we had underwater. We really went, you know, went at it with all of our energy to maximize our time. So we would have meetings with the surface support crew, give mm-hmm. them updates on like where we left instrumentation for them to pick up or when we ah. were giving them a pot of supplies to go back up, coordinating with the surface team for pretty much throughout the day as well as meeting with classrooms oh, across yeah. the country to really talk about the mission. That was really fun. And napping when we could. <laughs> and I think we did. We watched one movie. That movie oh, we, okay. we watched during our long period of off-gassing. So in order to leave the habitat after spending a long duration of time there, right. we recreate surface pressure inside this habitat that lives at 45 feet underwater. And so they slowly, slowly, slowly decrease the pressure to allow all of the nitrogen in your body to off gas. And it took like overnight. So we did watch a movie during that boring period. And you're not supposed to like move around too much then just really like kind of have a a zen relaxed moment for your body to do all that hard work of off gassing. So that's kind of like when you're actually scuba diving and you decompress, like you make the decompression stops on your way up. It's basically. Yeah, it's it's just like an extra long decompression and you're not actually in the water swimming. You're in the habitat sleeping, watching. (laughs) Okay. That's that's cool. So after that, continue that story. After that, what does it feel like to come back to Earth's Mm. surface after two weeks underwater? Well, my overwhelming memory is sadness. I was at the habitat. But but from the more realistic standpoint, I remember being excited about feeling the warm sun when I got back on yes. the boat okay. uh, and being happy to be able to walk long distances and not have to like bump and excuse me. <laughs> and, you know, my body also had like rashes from all of the wetsuits that we wore that uh. I So there was some like, you know, it was a nice moment to to relax and catch up on sleep. So coming up was a mixed bag for me because I really enjoyed my time underwater and I would absolutely do it again if given the opportunity. Yeah. I've heard that from other aquanauts I've talked to. That was their first thing. I think both Fabian and Brian said that um, and Mark Patterson, they were Mm -hmm. like, oh, I was sad because it was so fun. So, I mean, okay. So if a kid wants to do what you did, how do they go about doing it? Like, yeah. How do you get to live underwater? (laughs) (laughs) I think the first thing to do is really expose yourself to people that are doing the thing that you want to do and ask them those questions. Like, how did you get here? 
and finding ways to get involved with your local science center or aquarium or zoo and then learning how to scuba dive and yeah. seeing if it's something that really gives you that passion to keep going and, and learn more about being underwater. And from there, getting your science diver certification through generally, you can get them through universities and colleges that have active research. Cool. Um, yeah. And then go from there. And it's really an, it's an exciting and accepting community. And we would love to have next generations experience what we have. That would be fabulous. Yes. It really is a whole other world. It is. So I want to ask before Ms. Jen moves us on, if you were able to do any sort of a dive scientifically anywhere on the interconnected oceans of the world, <laughs> like maybe you could take your habitat. We'll even take this one into fiction realm. You could take the habitat. Would you want to put it off the coast of a certain place or yeah. what would you want to do? Well, I really love temperate diving, which is cooler than tropical diving. And okay. what I really like about it is the kelp that grows in these areas creates like a 3D living environment. Like you're in a forest, there's animals throughout the entire world. Wow. Oh, yes. wow. And so if I had to transplant the habitat... I would probably bring it to a temperate kelp forest somewhere like off of New Zealand or oh, okay. um, California, someplace that it would be really cold to dive there, but also really cool. Okay, That's, that sounds great to have that, that three-dimensional, yeah. both water and living plants and living yeah. organisms and all of the marine life. That really yes. does sound like a cool yes. option. Yeah. Underwater forests are amazing. And I'll give everyone a little plug. I have a book coming out next year about an underwater forest with a team from Northeastern's Marine Science Center. And it's yes. going to be amazing with, with some of the aquanets from there. That's going to be fabulous. Yeah. Okay. Well, we know that I could, of course, talk about the ocean forever. But we've reached that point in the show where we ask our guests to give our listeners a challenge. What is your challenge for Yay. everyone, Liz? So your most important job when you're scuba diving is, besides your own safety, trying to maintain your neutral buoyancy, which means that you are not floating or sinking too much. You're able to uh, stay right mm -hmm. where you want to in the water column. So I'd love to challenge your listeners to a neutral buoyancy challenge. And so this is really easy to do. You can do it in your bathtub or your kitchen sink. Okay. Find, find a Tupperware that is watertight. And then find some objects around the house that you think might help this Tupperware become neutrally buoyant. And so a Tupperware just closed as is, is going to be floating, bobbing on top of the water like a boat. Right. There is, yes. But if you put other things in it, maybe that are heavy, if you have some coins or nuts and bolts, if you want to ask your parents, something heavy to try and get it to be floating neutrally in the water. Ooh. The challenge is 30 seconds, not oh. out of the water or touching the bottom of the surface. Ooh, I, like I that. love that you gave yes. them a time. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not like it's on its way down. Oh, look, I did it. And then yeah. plunk, it hits the bottom. 30 yeah. seconds. And I love that it's physics, people. We have to understand how all of this works. Oh, my gosh. This has been a fantastic episode. Thank you yes. so much for being Thank on Solve for Kids. Thank Liz. you, Liz. This is a blast. Thank you so much. Liz McGee is fabulous. 
Whether your favorite environment is the ocean or it's your seventh favorite environment, Liz McGee is fabulous. And talking about being an aquanaut and what it's like underwater, how they do their experiments and how they live under there is just a fascinating conversation. We could have her back several times and talk about completely different topics, all from the same mission. So cool, Jen. Oh, absolutely. Liz is an amazing aquanaut. She's an example of all of the cool things that you get to do for research. She's a fabulous women in STEM. And just think about all of the cool animals she got to see, right? Like, I want this job. I think this would be so fun. And I'm curious about you guys doing this challenge, right, Jeff? This would be very intriguing. Lots of physics here, yes? Yes, this is one where I don't think many people do this one to include like homeschool parents and lots of science experiments. This one I don't hear a lot about for people doing at home. They may do it out in a science environment somewhere, but creating something that's neutrally buoyant. And we will explain this on our website. Jen will get to that. But you can do it right in your kitchen sink or even in your bathtub if you wanted to do it. Especially with the bathtub, I'm imagining if there are families listening with more than one kid and they've got different size containers and they're all (laughs) trying to do it at the same time. But trying to get neutrally buoyant, I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, listen up. Have patience. This is going to take a little bit of time and some experimenting and testing. I've done this even as a grown-up, and being neutrally buoyant as an experiment is a touchy thing. So have a little patience, keep trying, because once you get it, you will have that celebration moment. Yes, absolutely. It's really exciting, and you're going to learn so much about physics and buoyancy as you're doing this. We will have the link for all the directions for how to do this on our website, solveforkids.com, so make sure you check that out. But if you manage to do this or you want to share with us how difficult or easy it was to do this, we would love to hear from you. Tag us on our social media. We are at KidsSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And then I also challenge you guys to think about one extra thing. What would you love to see if you were an aquanaut living underwater? Is there a particular animal that you like or a coral reef or something? Share that with us too. I love that addition, Jen. This is going to be a great activity and an episode I think people are going to listen to over and again. Until next time, you will hear Jen and Jeff on Solve It It for Kids. Kids.